Well, good evening, everybody. Hope that you are doing well. We're going to continue tonight talking about the Baptist faith and message, and we have come to the topic of the kingdom. And I just want to say from the beginning that the kingdom is a very widely talked about subject in the New Testament, and it's going to be very difficult in the next 30 minutes to try and give you an accurate picture of what exactly the kingdom is. Uh, so I'm going to do my best, but I would encourage you uh, to spend some time studying on your own. There's been a lot of people that have written extensively about the kingdom and tried to explain it and looked at all the different verses that mention it in the New Testament, and we simply do not have time to look at all of them. At least in the English Standard uh, Version, the translation of the Bible that I use, uh, the, the word kingdom is used 126 times just in the four Gospels. So we don't have time to look at all of those references. And then throughout the rest of the New Testament, it's used 34 times for a total of 160 times that the term kingdom is referenced in the New Testament. So that's a lot. And it's very heavy in the Gospels, which is the life of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus is the one talking about the kingdom a lot. But before we get into specific verses, let's read what the Baptist faith and message says about the kingdom. It says, The kingdom of God includes both his general sovereignty over the universe and his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. So that's what the Baptist faith and message says that we believe about the kingdom. So there are some broad statements in there, and I want to help make them a little bit more uh, concrete for us, uh, help make them a little bit uh, more real for us. But before we get into that, I want us to talk a little bit just about the definition of kingdom. Because we, in 2020, are probably not very familiar with kingdom. All right, We live in a democracy, and so we don't have just one person at the top who uh, spouts out all the rules, and everybody else is just the minions, and we have to follow Right? There's a process by which we elect officials, and they can't be in office forever. They have term limits, some of them, uh, and then some people somehow stay in forever, it seems like. Uh, but it's very different from a kingdom. Okay, And so if we go to dictionary.com, which is where the first thing that, uh, that popped up in my Google search, the definition of kingdom is a country, state, or territory ruled by a king or a queen. And so the the emphasis on that definition is a territory. And we understand that because we think about territories of countries as the land where they exist, right? The United States of America is in a certain location on the map. And Ecuador, where we typically go every summer on a mission trip, is in a certain place on the map. And that is where that kingdom, or we could use the term kingdom, uh, is located. But I think that understanding kingdom, especially when we come to the New Testament and, and the Bible's understanding of kingdom, it's not going to be helpful for us if we're only thinking about it from a location standpoint. And so George Ladd, who um, wrote a lot about the kingdom, he wrote a, a book called The Gospel of the Kingdom. And this is how he attempts to define kingdom in that book. He says, the Hebrew Christian faith expresses its hope in terms of the kingdom of God. 
This biblical hope is not in the same category as the dreams of the Greek poets, but it is at the very heart of revealed religion. The biblical idea of the kingdom of God is deeply rooted in the Old Testament and is grounded in the confidence that there is one eternal living God who has revealed himself to men and who has a purpose for the human race for which he has chosen to accomplish through Israel. The biblical hope is therefore a religious hope. It is an essential element in the revealed will and the redemptive work of the living God. Okay, so George Ladd tries to understand the kingdom in that it's very much rooted in God, that there is one God, and that he has chosen that he is going to reveal himself, and he's going to do it through the people of Israel. We see that in the Old Testament. And it's the hope that God is going to do what God says he is going to do. Okay, so it's not so much just related to a certain area, but rather God ruling. Okay, so before we get into the New Testament, I want us to look at a few Old Testament passages. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. We're just going to read the first couple verses here. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. It says, And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain, go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so what's happening here is Isaiah is looking forward to a day when all of these things are going to happen. Right? And George Ladd would understand that this is the, the Old Testament understanding of kingdom would be the people understanding that God is going to accomplish this. He's going to bring about peace. There's no longer going to be war. Okay, But look also over to Isaiah chapter 11. And this is right after we see um, Isaiah talking about a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. Look at verses uh, 6 through 9 of Isaiah chapter 11. It says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Then they shall not hurt. Uh, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the, uh, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So I'm not going to let Graham play with snakes, or Jack for that matter, uh, put his, hole in an, or his hand in the, an adder's hole. Uh, but what you see here is that's the promise of what's going to come. And so this would be the understanding that the Old Testament has of the kingdom of God. It's this, this time in which these things will be a reality. We no longer deal with the issues that we uh, all are so familiar with, the issues of life, the hardships of life, all of the trials of life, the difficulties of life. And so in a broad sense, 
Just like the Baptist faith and message says, the kingdom of God includes his general sovereignty over the universe. Okay, so that's a very broad sense that we can understand the kingdom of God. Look with me at Psalm 103, and we'll get a good idea of this broad sense from this psalm. Psalm 103, verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, it's important that we understand that the psalmist is saying that he's established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Okay, so when the Bible says all, it means all. Okay, so everything that we can see, everything that we uh, know is in existence, okay? God's rule is over it all. So it's, his kingdom is over everything in that sense. And that's why the Baptist faith and message says that the kingdom of God includes his general sovereignty over the universe. But also notice what Psalm 103, 19 says, that his kingdom rules over all, okay? His kingdom, I think, is more linked to his ruling than it is to what he rules, Okay, and we're going to see that more in some of these, these verses to come. But God's kingdom rules over all, and it's his rule that everything is submitting to. So Daniel chapter 4, verse 3, I'll read this one. You don't necessarily have to turn there. It says, How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So again, we now understand that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Okay, it will not have an end. It will never uh, be not his kingdom. I mean, that's just what it means to not have an end, okay? It's everlasting. And so we know that it's broadly, it's over all, and it lasts forever. Psalm 145, verse 11 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power. Okay, so this is an example of parallelism where you've got two uh, lines that say something slightly different, but they basically have the same meaning, and you use this in order to emphasize something. And so here the psalmist is saying, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. Okay, so they're speaking about the glory of the kingdom, and they're telling of your power. Okay, so God's power would be synonymous with the glory of his kingdom. Okay, so in a very broad sense, we understand that God's kingdom is over all things. And we understand this because God is our creator. God's the creator of everything. He made everything. And so everything is in subjection to him. He has the right to rule over everything. He has the right for everything to be in submission to him. So that's a very broad understanding of the kingdom of God. Okay, everything is under the lordship of Christ. But now we need to understand it in a more narrow sense. What is, what is the kingdom of God in a more narrow sense? Well, right after that first statement of the Baptist faith and message, it says that the kingdom of of God includes both his sovereignty over the universe, that's what we just discussed, but also his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. So this is important. His lordship over those who acknowledge him as king. Okay, so this is where we get more specific about what does the kingdom of God mean. Look with me at John chapter 18, and we're going to look at verse 36. This is Jesus talking to Pilate after he had been arrested and before he was going to be crucified. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So we talked about generally God's kingdom is, is everything, all right? He's the creator. He, he made it all, and so it all belongs to him. And so he, in a very general sense, is the king over all of it. But here, talking to Pilate, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So again, we go back to the, our, our very basic understanding of kingdom, not so much being relegated to a location, because Jesus says it's not of this world, but more so of his reign or his rule, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. This is when Jesus first begins his public ministry. And I'm going to throw a bunch of references out there. I'm sorry, you don't need to turn to all of them. If you can, go for it. Keep up. That'd be great. Uh, But if not, uh, I'll just read them for you. This is Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, so now we have Jesus beginning his public ministry. And his message is to repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So if we were to understand God's kingdom as just his general sovereignty over everything, then there would be no reason for Jesus to say, repent. Okay, Because to repent means that we turn away from something and go away from it. Okay, We were walking in sin, and Jesus is saying, repent, don't do that, turn away from that, and then go the other way. But if Jesus' kingdom is just his general rule over everything, then there's really no reason for anyone to have to repent because everything already falls under the umbrella of his kingdom. Okay, so this is why it's important that we understand that when Jesus comes on the scene, we have 126 references to kingdom in the Gospels, and Jesus is making it crystal clear through all of these different references, and many that we'll look at tonight, that while he... His kingdom does include his sovereignty over all things. It is far more specific as well, okay? And so this is where we see that it's important. Jesus is saying we need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so not just anyone is going to be in the kingdom of God. And and Josh and and Matt McBroom even said it this morning, right? Uh, I believe it was Matthew 7.21. I have that here on my list. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so the Baptist faith and message says that the kingdom of God includes his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Okay, that's important. Jesus came preaching, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And here in Matthew, 21, Matthew 7, 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so there is a certain type of person who will be in the kingdom of heaven, and there's a certain type of person who will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Jesus is narrowing uh, our understanding of this kingdom. Also, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So there's a certain type of people that we know are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So in a very broad sense, we understand that everything that exists falls under God's kingdom. He is king and lord of all of it. But in the New Testament we get a a more specific and a clearer understanding of what exactly the kingdom of God is. And again, it's not relegated to a location, 
Now we'll get into uh, what the Israelites thought and why they were confused, but it's more so relegated to his reign. Because you've got a couple elements when you have a kingdom, right? You need to have a king. You need to have a location. You need to have people, subjects of the rule. And then you need to have rules. Those are like the four required elements of a kingdom, okay? And so you've got God as the king, okay? You've got uh, his people, those who repent and those who do the will of his Father who is in heaven are as the subjects or the people, And then we've got his rules, right? What he has said to us in the Bible, how he requires us to live, the obedience that he requires of the people. That's his rules. But then we get into like, wait a second, but where is it? Where is the kingdom? Because we are so familiar with it has to be a certain geographical location because if it's not, that doesn't make any sense to us. And this is one of the reasons why the Israelites were so confused in the New Testament because they thought that Jesus, the coming Messiah, was setting up an earthly kingdom. And they thought that he was going to set everything right and all that peace that we read about in the book of Isaiah that the prophet was looking forward to, they were thinking this is going to come right here to the kingdom of Israel. And so we are then going to be the kingdom in which God sets up his, his earthly rule and all of these types of things, but they were wrong. They were misunderstood about what exactly the kingdom of God was, okay? But then the Baptist faith and message says this also. It says, particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ, Okay, so in a very broad sense, it's everything. In a narrower sense, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. You must repent. You must do the will of the Father who sent Jesus. But we come, we enter the kingdom by trustful, childlike commitment or faith in Jesus. This is one of my favorite passages in in the Gospels, especially as, as a father now. Look at Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. Says, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. So Jesus welcomes the children to come to him. He says, do not hinder a single one because to them belong the kingdom of God. And then he says this interesting, interesting thing. He says, for truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What a fascinating thing that he says. We need to understand that there's a a difference between childlike faith and childish faith. Okay, because I think a lot of people, when they, they read this passage and they think that we need to have a childlike faith to enter the kingdom, they think, well, we shouldn't ask hard questions. We shouldn't try and seek out difficult answers to difficult passages. And they think, man, to be a child is just to hear and to believe and take it at, at its word. Okay, there are often times that that's how it goes with me and my children. They ask me a question, and even if I don't have a clue in the world, I make something up, and they're like, oh, okay. 
And they believe it because daddy said it, right? Maybe that's dangerous. Maybe I should do a little more research. But we get that. We all understand that. If you've been around children, they, are, they tend to believe far more likely than many other people, right? Us older people, we were very skeptical of a lot of things. Children are not so much that way. But there's a difference between us having childlike faith and childish faith, okay? Childlike faith is understanding our neediness. We understand that we are needy and that we cannot enter the kingdom of God apart from God changing our hearts, apart from God doing a work in our hearts to draw us to himself. We also understand our dependency on God. Okay, Children know that they are needy. They know that they are dependent. Well, I don't know if they realize it at the time. They will quickly learn later that they are very needy. They are very dependent. Okay, Jack is seven months old, and if we were to just leave him at home by himself, he can do nothing to help himself. He can do nothing to feed himself, to change his diaper, nothing. Very, very helpless, right? And the Bible says that we need to understand that we are just like that baby. There is nothing that we can do to get closer to God in, in earning our salvation. Okay, we are just as helpless and needy as that little baby that we can observe, And to have childlike faith means we understand those things and we believe God and we take him at his word. Okay, being childish is is not at all what what Jesus calls us to be. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, Paul says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says that their whole goal is him, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so the goal for someone who's a minister of the gospel is to present people mature in Christ. We want mature believers, childlike faith, not childish faith, okay? So the Baptist faith and message says we enter the kingdom through the realm of salvation into which men enter trustfully with childlike commitment to Jesus Christ, So there's another element to the kingdom that it's important that we talk about. There may be this phrase that you've heard before, the already and not yet. Because there are times in the New Testament and in the Gospels where the the kingdom of God is talked about as the present reality. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was the, the message of John the Baptist. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus had the same message when he began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's here. But then there are also passages where we understand that uh, the, the kingdom is talked about as a future reality. It's something that we are not experiencing yet, but will experience in the future. Um, look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. This is kind of what I was just saying. Uh, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand, so you need to repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus also, uh, in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, he was being asked by the Pharisees about the kingdom of God. And it says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay, it's in the midst of you. It's here. It's already present. And what Jesus was revealing is that he is the king of that kingdom. So the king of the kingdom is here in your midst. So that's the already, okay? The gospel or the kingdom is here. It is among us. And as we understand, this, it's God's reign in our lives, not so much a physical location. But there's also a sense in which it's not yet. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs us to pray. And in Matthew 6, 10, he says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for your kingdom to come because it's not here yet. Okay, so we understand that there's a sense in which the kingdom is yet to be received. But also in Luke 19, verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus knew that they were wrong. They were assuming that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And Jesus told a parable because it was not going to appear immediately. And so there's a sense in which sometimes in the Gospels, it seems like the Gospels are already here because Jesus says it's at hand. John the Baptist said it's at hand. But then there are a lot of passages that also say that it's a future reality. We need to pray that God's kingdom would come. And so how do we make sense of all of that? We'll make sense of it by understanding that God's kingdom has not come in its full reality, in the fullest sense of God's kingdom. It's not here yet. Okay, we don't want to understand that the, king, that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is synonymous with the church. It's not, okay? The kingdom of God is the realm of all people who submit to his lordship because as Psalm 103 said, primarily his kingdom is his reign, okay? It's his ruling over his people. And so those who submit, those who repent, those who obey the, the Father, those are the ones who are in the kingdom, But I want us to look, as we end, to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, and I want us to read a short passage about the great commandment. Mark chapter 12, we'll look look at verse 28 down to verse 34. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he had answered him well, he asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart And with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. See, the scribe had an understanding of what it meant to know God but he did not have his heart changed. So Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. 
And we've got to be telling this to people as well. Because all that's required for entrance into the kingdom is repentance and faith. Nobody's truly that far from the kingdom. Okay, it's not like we have to make a a trip to Mecca or a trip to a holy land or, or anything like that in order to be saved, right? God's kingdom is everywhere. It's where he reigns in his people's heart. And so for you and for me tonight, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is a a vast subject. And like I said at the beginning, there's so much in the New Testament about the kingdom of God, it's hard for me to try and explain all of it. But the Baptist faith and message is very clear that it is a particular kingship over men and women who willfully acknowledge him as king. If that's you, then you are part of the kingdom. If you acknowledge him as king, if you submit to his lordship, then you are part of the kingdom of God and you have entered by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Jesus says that anyone who will come, he will not cast out. Jesus is the way that we enter into the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is his rule and his reign in our hearts. Are we in a position of submitting to his lordship? Are we willing to listen to his rules and to his, uh, his commands and obey them? Those are kind of some questions that we've got to ask of, of ourselves, of our own heart. Because if not, perhaps we're that scribe who knows the answers. I can tell you, Jesus, what, what the greatest commandment is. But until we believe it and submit to it in our heart, the answer is, you're not that far from the kingdom. Right? But it's a childlike faith in Jesus that gets us into the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for 126 references just in the four Gospels to kingdom. God, we thank you that Jesus was so so wanting people to know what the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is, that he talked about it a lot. God, I pray that we would understand right now and tonight that the kingdom of God is your ruling and your reigning in the hearts of your people. God, we thank you that you are Lord over all. God, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark on how one becomes part of the kingdom. God, we know that for anyone who will repent and believe in Jesus, they will be welcomed into the kingdom. God, we thank you for the Baptist Faith and Message series where we've been able to really look at and spend time thinking about what it is we believe as a church. And we believe that for anyone who turns from their sin and places their faith in Jesus and the saving work that he accomplished on our behalf on the cross, in the grave, and rising from the grave, will be saved. They will become a part of the kingdom. God, may that bring comfort to us. May that make us bold in our proclamation. May we be willing and ready to share this good news with those who who need to hear it. And God, we thank you again for Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.